Hello and welcome to Mastering Dungeons. I am Sean Merwin here with Duke fanatic Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos. Let's go, Duke. Let's go, Duke. Let's. Yes. So, uh, Duke, <laughs> this this is the basketball portion of our show. <laughs> this is the Mike Shea basketball minute. Yes. So Duke has reached the final four uh, of the NCAA tournament. That's Teos's alma mater. My alma mater, St. Bonaventure University, has made the final four of the NIT tournament, which no one cares about. So, But that's are... awesome. I mean, let's yes. be honest. Uh, that is fantastic. Both of us, final four. I mean, we did so much for our teams. Yes. I tutored uh, when I worked uh, for St. Bonaventure, uh, some of the basketball team back in the day. So I have a That's awesome. Slip. I worked yeah. on the side of uh, – I worked basketball games – uh, I was three people away from Coach K nice. uh, for five years. One of my graduate, uh, two graduate school years, and one of my uh, four. Uh, how's it work? Three undergraduate <laughs> years. There you <laughs> go. That's du- five. That, that Duke education has all oh, but my freshman year. Yeah, made your counting that was, skills incredible. Uh, you should. Oh yeah. You should get a refund on that. Uh, I should on math, yeah. but I uh, I did get to hear uh, his colorful language and also his coaching insights for five years. That was great. Exactly. And I bet you could spell Shashevsky too. Yeah, I can. I, I know. That's what I'm saying. No one else, probably even his own family can't, but but I'm sure you can. I'm teaching my kids to do that. Uh, nice. I think we've reached the point at which Mike Shea would turn us off, so we better turn to gaming. We will do that. We will talk, first of all, a question from friend of the show, Eric Mengi, on Twitter, who asked, I just finished listening to your March 17th episode where you talked about the Kender Unearthed Arcana article. I'm curious as to your opinion on the strength of bonus actions in this UA and in other releases generally. And I think this is a really important game design question yeah. of, of what are bonus actions in, in the game? What do they do? And has that changed since, since the release of you know 5e? several years ago go, going um we're going to be up on 10 years before we know it yeah and, and uh so let's i have some thoughts and we'll see if teos agrees i think when 5e was released bonus actions weren't there to make classes stronger they were clear they were there to make classes more flavorful and offer more flexibility rather than strength some of the classes that flexibility is key right rogues need to attack, but also their whole spiel is getting into and out of danger or being mm-hmm. tricky. Uh, monks have all these monk-like abilities that rely on uh, doing something other than attacking or enhancing their attacks. Uh, we who have played clerics in previous editions know the pain of playing a cleric where the only thing you get to do on your turn is to heal your party members and don't get to do anything else. So bonus actions are there. And they need to be there because players have shown by both you know, votes and by actual play that they don't want to waste actions on their turns. They want to be able to do something not just cool, but something that leads to the resolution of the battle. And so having to use it as full action to cast Hunter's Mark is something that a Ranger player would generally 
avoid doing if it means they can't attack. So that spell right. would become a bonus action. Barbarians, you know, entering a rage, if that was a, an action, players of barbarians would either not play barbarians or would be hesitant to do so if the math that they did in their head didn't work out to make it worthwhile. Is it worth wasting the potential 12 points of damage to do an extra blank number of points of damage every round after this? So, you know, those sorts of things, bonus actions were put into the game to take away that choice, take away that uh, pain point. What happens, though, is we need to create more content because we need to sell more books because we need the game to continue to grow. So <laughs> what what sorts of currency do we have to deal with, to work with when we create new features? We have, you know, actions, bonus actions, times per long rest, times per short rest, times per ability modifier, times per proficiency bonus is now a big one. Um, key points, sorcery points, spell slots. We can name lots of them, but they are limited. So when, as we're creating these new things, we're, we're always thinking, how can we make this work? So the bloat of the rules in general turn into a bloat for these currencies. And bonus actions are a big one because yeah. it's, it's such an easy fix to this problem but then it becomes a problem in and of itself as the uh, ways that you can use it and the power that it adds when you use it increases. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and that's better than I would have said it. To add to it, I think that a lot of this you can look at actually by looking at the rogue and the monk. And the rogue is, is often pointed as just almost a perfect class in terms of 5e design because its bonus action and action combination and the sneak attack are what allows it to be a light fighter that feels mobile, feels a little glass cannon-y, uh, but, but it creates interest, right? Rather than just being a straight-up fighter that can wade in or a paladin or something like that. And, and that bonus action is the key to ensuring that it does so well. If you look at monks they do a lot of sort of little things that need the bonus action. So it adds up to something. Mm -hmm. Right. And sometimes it fails to do so, or sometimes it does so too well, for example, stunning something that mm -hmm. should be thrilling. And now it's not. And, and so monks, you know, don't quite do it as well as the rogue. And the more that you get into that business, the more that you are, are failing. The other thing is that with like the rogue, that's what the bonus action does. It does this key ability to to swap in for one of a few choices, often used to to uh, to to uh, retreat, right? But when you start offering subclasses, feats, who knows what else, that becomes so many choices that now the classes that are already quite fine. Can choose from them and it becomes too much, right? Like you already are okay as a cleric. You don't really need bonus actions. But if I give you a subclass which provides a constant use bonus action, you're going to use that or you're going to maximize it. And in the end, we end up in a situation where I remember at, towards the end of fourth edition, I played at a convention table where there was a monster that dared to move. <laughs> and when it moved, every single one of the six, six players chose to interrupt it mm -hmm. based on something that had happened. Right. 
And most of those interruptions were completely useless. Like it was three points of damage or it, you know, stopped it from moving, but actually had already intended on stopping to move. And it was just, it ate up five minutes of game time for no benefit. Right. Yet everybody felt they had to, right? And that's what the bonus action does is it creates this feeling that you must use all of your action economy and optimize it. And that's destructive to a fun, quick, light game that, you know, stays exciting and interesting. Right. And what it does, too, by adding classes, adding bonus action abilities to classes, subclasses that didn't have them originally or didn't have many, is that you are taking away that choice that some players might have to want to play a simple class. Uh, Because, I mean, sure, you can always just refuse to do the thing, but then you are, you know, putting the player at risk of getting flat from the other players at the table for not realizing that because they have this subclass or this feat, that they have this bonus action that they can take. Uh, So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a great question, Eric. Uh, And it really is a, a good lesson of game design to, to see how something that was intended for one way get used in a different way and how it can really change the play of the game uh, when it is used differently than it was intended. And it's one of those things that uh, is additive to all the other things we do design-wise. Like I forget which Tasha's subclass we reviewed, but there was one where when you killed a creature, you sort of wanted to track its location in case something should happen based on that. And when you add that to things like, you know, bonus actions, it all adds up to just more and more time spent by the character managing instead of just role-playing and having fun. And, yeah, you don't want the game to be as boring as I hit it with my axe and I'm done, but you want to minimize just that that sluggishness that the the game will feel. Right? It'll and, incur that. Right. And it it is totally fine to have a very, very, very complex game. There is no problem with that. You don't have to enjoy it, but there are people out there that do enjoy a very tactical game with six different kinds of actions that you can take on your turn. And you can do all of that. What we're saying is if the game starts out as not being that, when you turn the game into that, you are changing the way that the game is consumed. And and now you are putting different interests of players in conflict at at the same table so that's where you have to be cognizant of these things it's almost like boy i wish there was a basic version and an advanced version of D &D, huh (laughs) Uh okay Mm. yeah and we will get into that later when we talk about the next adventure we're going to talk about uh the isle of dread but first we've got some news to get through and the big news is a new book was announced just after we recorded last week, of course. Uh, This book is called Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel. It will be published by Wizards of the Coast, releasing on the 21st of June, 2022. What does the book cover, you ask? Well, let me tell you. Here is the blurb. Through the mists of the Ethereal Plain shines the Radiant Citadel. Travelers from across the multiverse flock to this mysterious bastion to share their traditions, stories, and calls for heroes. A crossroads of wonders and adventures, the Radiant Citadel, what did I just say? The Radiant Citadel is the first step 
on the path to legend. Where will your journeys take you? Uh, so interesting blurb. Uh, Teos, do you want to give us the details of what this book is? Gladly. So this is a collection of 13 short standalone D&D adventures, challenges for characters levels 1 to 14. And something that makes it really interesting is not only is this say like Candlekeep Mysteries bringing in new and different authors, but each of the adventures has either a black or brown author, which is the first time in D&D history that this has been the case for some large project like this. And the project was headed by Ajit George, who had proposed the project to Wizards of the Coast after working with them previously. And that's really cool, right? That, that yeah. he had the ability to say, what if we did something like this? And they said, yes. Um, and the, the adventures vary in tone from dark to whimsical. But one of the themes that has come out uh, through the interviews is that they viewed the creation of the Radiant Citadel itself as a place that was relatively harmonious. There is no uh, big factions fighting each other the way you might find at a place like Sigil. Uh, there are threats to the Radiant Citadel, but, you, uh, but it is a place where people are getting along and, and are generally happy. And even the the adventures that are dark in tone have an uplifting part to them. And that was a deliberate choice by, by the team. Yeah. I mean, it's the quote uh, from Ajit George is interesting. It says, if, if Sigil is asking questions about the nature of reality, then the Radiant Citadel is asking questions about society and community, about fundamental questions of people and humanity. So, you know, I, I love that idea of yeah. having this place that is... The, the conflict is not within it. The conflict is from without. And you get to go out from there and deal with those conflicts. Um, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, they mentioned at one point each adventure has its own set of maps. I thought that was sort of a strange selling point to be on the TNT product page. Like, don't most adventures come with maps? But yeah. we'll see what that means. Uh, there are 11 new monsters. Um, there's been a sharing of, of the credits. Um, which included a number of things, including saying that the director of studio operations for the D&D studio is Kyle Brink. And I think that might be a new role. I hadn't seen that before. Um, yeah. But all of the writers are named, which is really fantastic. Uh, some, some, some known names there for sure, uh, as well as new ones. So I'm looking forward to, hear, to uh, seeing more about them. And one thing I didn't get to do is I didn't get to look at Dragon Plus. Right. Uh, in fact, it's funny, last week, I think... I sent an email or a tweet to, to Bruce um, saying, is this, uh, or Bart Carroll, I mean, yeah. sent, saying, when is Dragon Plus coming out? It's been a while, and now it came out, and I haven't had a chance to look at it. So yeah. for next and week, we'll have I to I know look that at it. people were having trouble with the links, even, because uh, yeah. it's sort of an awkward, an awkward uh, setup, the way it is put onto mobile devices and trying to get it through the web uh, is, yeah. is a whole process. So... Uh, you can find more information about it there, as well as uh, we have several links in our show notes to places that reported this. So you can check it out there. Uh, the Adventures League blog has a new article from GM Tim, who was a host on our final Frostmaiden discussion show. Uh, GM Tim wrote the 10th adventure in the Mist Hunters series for the Adventures League called The Deadliest Game. And so he, he talks about his writing process in this blog. And I'm, I'm glad that they're putting things like this out now that the Adventures League is to 
sort of demystify the process and to share, you know, let, let the people that create the adventure share some information about their process, about, you know, what they do. I think it's, it's good information to, for the, for the players and the DMs to see for people who aren't into adventures league to see what this whole thing is about. Yeah. And, and it breaks down uh, some of the, 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 the differences between authors, like for example, GM Tim shares that he feels he can't really visualize in his mind's eye a scene. He doesn't see it like a movie. And because of that, he doesn't do what a lot of folks will talk about, which is to picture what it will look like for the players or anything like that. So instead he works through his villain's goals and the adventure themes, and then he creates a story around those. Mm-hmm. And then he feels like that's how he kind of compensates for that through this different process. And he, he uh, writes a you know a lot more about what that process is. He also at one point talked about how number of things had to be cut from the adventure, and also about rewriting large parts of it because it needed to 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 yeah. go through some fa- phases and iterations before it could be in its final shape. And that, and those are all good things for for other writers to hear about that these things happen right. And there are different yeah. approaches you must take based on who you are. Exactly, especially in a. Uh, situation where you're writing the tenth adventure in a very long running series, yeah. there there are always going to be hiccups and changes needed, and you know some people feel like turn they turn in their final draft and they're done, and that is rarely the case. Whether they have to revise it themselves or some developer is doing the revisions, just in time for Halloween in <laughs> seven months, uh, we have Wizards of the Coast partnering with Trick or Treat Studios for a line of Halloween masks themed around classic D&D monsters and characters. So you too can get your Beholder, Mind Flayer, uh, Venger from the animated D&D series, uh, maybe Driss uh, uh coming for us. And all of that <laughs> will be uh, coming in time for Halloween, where the masks price range from fifty nine to ninety nine dollars. Yeah, and and they look really amazing. Like this is one of these places that makes you know really cool looking realistic masks, and and I guess they they went through a lot of thoughts on which ones to create. Like I guess originally they were going to create an undead beholder, and they're like, well, just beholder is iconic. Let's go with that. Yeah. And and it does look really cool. Like I could see a lot of DMs thinking that if they're going to run a really neat beholder adventure. Putting this mask on would be, you, you know, really amazing for that event. So I, I can see, though the price tag is obviously not cheap, I could see, you know, people DMs getting mileage from this, right? Yep, and not surprisingly, right, the uh, the folks at Trick or Treat Studios are going for the ones that Wizards of the Coast has a specific copyright trademark on: uh, the holders, <laughs> yeah. mind flayers, the individual characters. Because yeah. anybody could make an orc mask, uh, right. and there's not much that anyone's going to say about it because orc is sort of in the public domain for, for through various reasons. Uh, yep. But they're going to hit you with the stuff that only they will be able to do, and, and I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, so MCDM had a little bit of a uh, little bit of a reckoning, I guess you you might call it, about publication problems. Uh, and you know that's obviously not their fault, but they are the ones that are going to bear the burden of it. And I'm going to let you speak to this. 
Sure. And, and it's not, you know, it, it get, you get the sense from what's being talked about that it's probably not their fault. It's, it's never clear. And these issues are tough. And in fact, Sean and I both have been talking to a, a friend of the show who almost had a major print error recently. And these, these things have happened throughout history, right? We have um, the, the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons DMG had a number of original copies that went out that had pages from the monster manual replacing some of the pages that should have been from the DMG. Just, you know, all of a sudden your book would go from DMG to monster manual to back to DMG. D and D had a famous one where the wizard was printed everywhere because someone decided at the last minute to change mage to wizard. So words like damage became the wizard. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, and, and almost always when the publisher was not wizards, they were smaller medium that's just how the book went out. Yeah. You know, it's missing five pages or here's a little insert to fix it or whatever else. When the company was wizards, they would often recall all the affected copies, destroy them, eat that cost and deal because, well, they're big enough to do that. Right. Right. Um, but, and, and we might think of MCDM as a big company, but uh, with kingdoms and warfare, their latest Kickstarter, uh, they, they're very clear. And I've spoken to enough people behind the scenes to know that this is true, that, you know, the, the margins are thin. And when you're trying to pay people well and employ people full time and prepare for your next project, you need that Kickstarter success to go into your next project. And time matters, right? You want to fulfill, get that out to everybody and get to the next project so you can keep being a productive company. Mm -hmm. So in this case, what happened was a text flow problem where two different pages the text that should have been on one page moved onto the other, and it creates a spacing weird logic issue for those two pages. They also had on the deluxe editions, somehow the gold foil is missing. And so if you paid extra because you wanted that fancy gold foil and not just the you know look of the, the outside, well, then this could be a big issue to you. And, and their first communication was a little, uh, let's say, imperfect, uh, which... That based on that first communication that was sort of buried in a Kickstarter update, a lot of fans, or at least some loud ones, uh, took issue to to sort of what was going on, and so that's where Matt Colville and others had to sort of like talk and say, "Hey, here's here's the reality of who we are. Here's what we're doing. We're exploring all all the costs and options, and you can't just sue the company, the printer." And you can't just eat the cost because that would be the, right. end, of, the end of the company. Of any future right. publishing. Yeah. 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 I mean, so, it, it's, it's tough and it happens everywhere. It's happened at Ghostfire. It happens at Wizards, big, small, medium. Uh, there's always that risk. And, so, and these yeah. days it's even, I think, tougher because uh, one of the things they said to begin with was when they wanted to print, they went to their printer and said, cool, we had such a great time last time. Here's our next project. And they said, yeah, we're not printing for anybody because we have so little capacity to print with all the demand that Amazon provides that we're essentially unavailable. Find someone else. Mm -hmm. And so then you're trying to find the best next thing, which may not be quite as good as the one you're using. And if when they were looking at the options, they're like, well, if we don't just give you the imperfect version. What does that mean? Well, it means losing a ton of profit, but also now you've got to wait many months for these books to be remade. Right. Is that what backers want? And so they're actually going to send out a survey and ask what each backer wants. Do you just want the book the way it is? Do you want MCDM to fix it with a sticker? And so they, 
have been going through all last week and looking at what does it look like when you put a sticker on a book to correct it and actually it looks pretty good and other companies have done this. So that's it. And then do you let people do their stickers? No, MCDM saying we're going to get really good at applying these stickers. So if we mess it up, we'll destroy that book and that's on us, but we're going to send you a really good book with a sticker yep. or you can wait for a reprint which will take a long time to do all the shipping and printing issues so it'll be interesting to see what the different backers uh go for what you know i wonder whether they'll share sort of how people uh side you know do they do the most of them just say just give me the book right now right. or do they go for the sticker yeah. how many people actually want a reprint yeah. it'll be very interesting to see but uh it's a good, I'm glad, you know, I'm not glad this happened, but given that it happened, I'm glad that there's a conversation about it so that more people are aware of this, that printing is no joke and it comes with really huge risks and it's very hard to 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 know for sure that what you print is really, truly going to come out okay. Yeah. Yep. You can get you know, a preview copy that's sent to your company. You know, they print they print one copy or three or five, send them out for you to look at. Even if you fix that, the next batch they run could be messed up in some other way through no fault of your own or through, you know, so just for any reason. So unless you're standing right there at the press while it's running, uh, there's really <laughs> nothing you can do about it. So, uh, yeah, so, so good on uh, MCDM for being upfront about it and for talking it through with, uh, with everyone. We are now getting more from Stephen Colbert, who will do another charity one-shot for Red Nose Day. Uh, they, they are raising funds for children's health. Uh, so Stephen will be joining uh, Critical Role to play a new adventure entitled Choose Stephen Colbert's Adventure Again. Um, if you remember, Colbert did a solo game in 2019 with Matt Mercer that seemed to go over well. So we are getting uh, a second run of this. Only Stephen will be joining the entire cast. That's cool. Yep. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun. And uh, you can donate and three or donations make some choices of sort of like, what is the item that he has to retrieve? And what magic item does he start with? Uh, what's a special spell that he can use once during the adventure? What is the familiar who accompanies him? So all of this is defined based on how people vote. Um, so you can do that while you're also donating to yeah. the cause of children's health. Yeah. And that will be airing on April 28th at 7 PM Pacific time with Matt DMing the adventure and the other cast members appearing as adventurers. We're getting information now from magic, the gathering on the details of their commander legends battle for Baldur's gate set. This set releases on the 10th of June, 2022. It will, will consist of a, a draft, set, and collector boosters. There are also four 100-card commander decks. Um, if you're a Magic aficionado, the set includes a reprint of the popular Battle Bond lands. And I have no idea what those are, but apparently these have only appeared in two other sets, so this, is, this will make the set more attractive. But at the end of the day, for D&D for &D fans, it, it means more cards in a variety of formats with really cool art. Um, which probably we'll see some of the art in our D&D books as well. Um, and the Commander format is very popular. It's a neat way to play Magic the Gathering. So this is, you know, again, elevates D&D, and that's uh, good news for everybody. Uh, WizKids has announced either new minis or that April 1st has come early. Uh, so I'll, we're going to turn this over to our master of minis, Teos Abadia. What's okay, up with folks this, Teos? Know 
I, I love minis, and and the last thing I want to do is to make fun of minis, but it has gotten so I, I want to say kind of absurd that it really could be April first, and and you know an April Fool's joke rather than an actual press release, but. Um, WizKid swears they're being truthful when they say that they're going to make a Dungeons & Dragons Teeth of Dalvernar bite-sized artifact. And if you recall, we covered these when we talked about, I think it was Tasha's that had the mm -hmm. magic item in it. This is an artifact where there are a bunch of different teeth and you pull them out of a bag and you put them in replacing one of your teeth and, and this gives you a benefit. Um, so there are a set of 20 plastic teeth that look everything from like prismatic to old bone and you know riddled with fire or anything uh they come in a leather bag with a d20 and a little booklet that tells you how to use them i guess all for 80 dollars i can't believe this is all real uh yeah. and <laughs> i'm not kidding they also are recreating the artifact Darren's instant fortress as a gray and rust colored plastic seven inch by seven inch by almost 12 inch tall square fortress that you just would chuck on your table. That's $150. Uh, there's a set of five tiny fairy dragons for $40. And just today, an elder Phoenix for 140, uh, 140, 180, um, 180. So I don't, I don't understand the market for minis clearly. Um, but there you have it. These are real. Yeah. Do you think it's a matter of there are people out there willing to pay a lot of money for these things and WizKids will just continue to push the envelope until they get to a point where where the people who are willing to pay 80 bucks for 20 plastic teeth say, well, well that's it. That's the point. I, I'm going to stop. So I, I think so, but but I guess... I'm just blown away that we haven't already reached that price point because uh, like I, because I'm so into minis, I, I know a lot of people who are into minis and basically every person I talk to says, I I've run out of space to display my minis. I can't house more of them. And also they're getting so much more expensive and the quality has been dropping. I, I don't know how I can keep doing this. Right. And, and a lot of them have said I've stopped buying these because I hit my limit. And so I guess there must be folks out there who are still saying like, yeah, Darren's instant fortress, 150 bucks. Let's go. Um, but, but I, I'm, I'm shocked that we have not reached that turning point already. And maybe there are enough people out there that are collectors that are funneling it, but, but these items, they end up in store shelves, right? So that's a lot of inventory. If you think of every gaming store out there, like when I go to my local gaming stores, these things are on shelves. So they're making them in large, you know, they're not making 10 of them or 20 of them. They're making right. a lot of them. And and that's what I find very surprising, that there would be that many people who would just walk in and go, oh, plastic teeth. I'll get those. Mm -hmm. $80? Yeah. Sure. I'm lucky to keep my real ones. <laughs> well, you know what? A lot of game designers, rather than GoFundMe now, they can just choose these that's and right. uh, replace their teeth this way. It's really. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's, to, that, um, that's a good point. I should be ashamed of that joke. I think I am. Okay. Uh, for for everyone who uh, is very upset at, at Taylor's right now, you can email him. Uh, at SeanMerwin at gmail.com. <laughs> there you go. Uh, <laughs> and a blast from the past. We have been talking about converting old adventures to 5e. Well, it turns out that M.T. Black wrote uh, his own advice a while back about converting adventures. 
Uh, you want to tell us what Mr. MT had to say? Yeah, it's great advice. It, it, some of it, you know, really echoes things we've been saying. But one neat piece that we haven't touched on, he suggests how to handle treasure and how to convert the items that you find in an old adventure to the closest matching item in 5e using a rarity-based system uh, looking at the tier. So if you're playing a tier one game, it should be uncommon. Tier two, it should be rare. Tier three, very rare. Tier four, legendary. And and if you use that as your as your your matching point, then you'll end up without you know overpowering the, the party because some some items have truly changed. He also points out that you know finding a plus four sword is not something that happens in five e. So you want to change that up and then convert it to something that that would work for your tier as well. There you go. So we've li linked to the blog in our show notes, so you can check out all the advice there. Yep, lots of great advice from MT on his website over the years. All right, so with that, let's actually do our own version of Converting Old Adventures. This time we are going to the Isle of Dread. Not an AD&D adventure, but an expert rules adventure. So for those of you who may not be familiar with this, uh, back in the day, there were two versions of D&D. There was basic D&D and advanced Dungeons and & Dragons. And the basic set evolved over the years to become basic then expert then and i lose track of this here it's masters some, immortal yeah and there's a c in there somewhere uh champion maybe maybe uh but this uh right. adventure the isle of dread was uh sold separately but also put into a standalone box that had the first set of expert rules for the basic Dungeons and Dragons game. I'm aware of this because before I bought any books uh, or anything at all, uh, the group that I ended up playing with had switched from basic and expert to AD&D. So one of them had this blue box of expert rules that they no longer wanted. And so they just sort of threw it out and I picked it up. So before I knew anything about AD&D. I'd played it, but I really didn't understand the game. I had this box of expert rules, which was pretty useless without the basic rules too, uh, but it had this adventure in it. So I did get to peruse this adventure, even though I had no idea about what it actually meant in terms of game rules. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things that makes this adventure um, a, a well-known adventure is that it was packaged with this and as you said, a lot of people didn't necessarily even know that they needed the basic set. They'd just grab it and inside would be this adventure. It was also sold uh, separately. And so this led to huge uh, rules, by the way, or huge sales. Um, by the way, it was Companion was the C. Companion, that's it. So this is a highly pulpy adventure inspired by such classic stories, novels as King Kong. Think of the lost jungle island with dinosaurs and natives worshiping, you know, their own gods and huge creatures, alien creatures and so on. Uh, the expert rules, one of the things that was in them that wasn't in basic D&D was introducing hex crawl rules. So this adventure moved away from the traditional dungeon experience into this sort of you know, hex crawl sandbox uh, type adventure. 
And it's the first D&D adventure to do that, to, to create this sort of thing. And last time, you know, we talked about in DL1, the Dragonlance adventure, how it looked like a sandbox, but wasn't at all. Right. <laughs> right? And this is truly a sandbox. And, and you have sort of a, a likely beginning, maybe, and then a likely end, maybe. But you can otherwise really go around and just stumble into stuff, and you may do half the adventure or all of it, or who knows, and right. uh, and you may stumble into places that are way too hard, or or go through places that are very easy, and it, it's all very sandboxy. Mm -hmm. And as Teos points out in our show notes, if you played Five E's Tomb of Annihilation, um, you got a blank hex map with just certain areas. Uh, filled in and you had to figure out what was in the rest of it if your dungeon master ran that sort of game this comes directly from uh, this adventure it provides you with the, the DM gets a map that shows what's on every hex but you have this lost map from this captain who uh, circumnavigated the island yeah. so, so knew what was on the outer uh, edges but the inside is blank and so you as the player fun. have this map and we all know blank maps are the greatest things in gaming mm -hmm. because you just want to know what's there. You want to fill them in. You want to have all your questions answered. Uh, you want to talk for a second about the known world and what that means? Yeah. So this, um, uh, this adventure is set in what's known as the known world or Mistara. And that's what was used for basic and expert. And that's us, not Greyhawk. It's it's separate from that. Uh, and what was interesting about this adventure is the first section, as we're going to talk about, it discusses, lays out all these different lands that at the time were unknown to fans. So they're they're literally looking at this adventure and going, "Oh my God, look at all these lands out there!" Right? Be like if you got a Forgotten Realms book that suddenly gave you all these you know yeah. locations and kingdoms and, and it's just a little paragraph on each but that was amazing or even telling you about what's in the sea of dread and naming all the surrounding lands that was a big deal to, to people back then yeah so this was published in 1981 just to give you a scale so this basic and expert uh set was running parallel to what was happening in ad and d at the time and it was written by uh, David Zeb Cook and Tom Moldvay uh, yeah. of, of the you know, basic box set uh, fame. We've seen the Isle of Dread in other editions, as often happens. They go back and pay homage to it or redesign it. Um, so during the 3E days, uh, Paizo created the Savage Tide series, and it placed the Isle of Dread in Greyhawk. Uh, issue of Dungeon 114 has a new map for the Isle of Dread. Yeah, and it, it also has encounter charts and adventure hooks, three stat blocks for the new monsters, places of mystery to explore, and then this adventure, Torrents of Dread, that, that takes place there that's all around the zombie master who has gone missing from the village and now undead are rising, and what do you do with that? Um, the adventure is for 6th level, 3rd edition characters. So if you like 3rd edition, you can... <laughs> go straight to the Isle of Dread through that uh, vehicle. There you go. Uh, and fourth edition in the Manual of the Plains, it said the Isle of Dread is actually a Feywild location that can move from one world to another. Uh, 
There was another adventure called Isle of the Ape, which was an AD&D Greyhawk adventure that wasn't the Isle of Dread, but some times people confuse the two uh, because they have very similar themes and so on. Uh, In fourth edition, I forgot about this, there was a lair assault program that that was called Attack of the Tyrant Claw, which was a tower defense challenge set on the Isle of Dread. Yeah, and then really my favorite is the D&D Next playtest version of 5e had Chris Sims along with Bruce Cordell, Rob Schwab, and Matt Cernet revise the adventure as part of the playtest. I think it was the seventh packet to come out. Mm -hmm. And if you happen to have this, it can't be distributed, but if you happen to have this, it actually does a really great job of revising the initial hooks and dealing with the various issues we're going to cover um, it has ways to resolve encounters with groups of creatures beyond fighting. It adds little complexities to each of the various peoples on the aisle. Um, so that, that's, that really was an excellent uh, uh, event. Uh, then around the same time, uh, Adam Page wrote the Isle of Dread Gazetteer. Actually, this is during 4th edition. Also a really great setting book, but I think because it's sort of unauthorized, uh, it is no longer in print, but if you happen to find a, a copy of it, it has a lot of neat ideas, uh, his own ideas, Adam's own ideas of, of how uh, you might create a setting book out of it. Um, so there's some neat pieces there. Yeah. And then Goodman Games, I don't know if we've mentioned this in previous episodes, but they reprint 5th edition things. They have a license to to reprint classics. They Their books are enormous, which is one of the main reasons I don't own any of them. They just eat up unbelievable shelf space. Uh, because they reprint on very thick paper the classic adventure and then an updated converted version in 5th edition. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of them, but but they are an option for people who want to just grab something off their local gaming store shelf and you know run this adventure in 5th edition format. Mm-hmm. Um, you may or may not love the way they do the updates, but, but they're there as an option. They are. Uh, so what is in the adventure itself? Well, there are essentially four parts to the adventure. The first being the introduction, uh, which like most uh, module introductions, they talk about stuff like who is the, what levels are the adventure for? Uh, you know, stop reading here if, <laughs> if you're going to be a player. Um, but I really love this one section, which sort of put to rest for me the question of, What's the DM's role in in D and D? Is it adversary? Is it facilitator? Is it judge? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And it says the DM should be careful to give the player characters a reasonable chance for survival. The emphasis is on reasonable. Try to be impartial and fair, but give the party the benefit of the doubt in conditions of extreme danger. However, sometimes the players insist on taking unreasonable risks, charging a tyrannosaur barehanded for example. <laughs> so, you know, for me, that that was always a question that, that was in my mind as I played or as I DM'd. And I think that really sums it up very well, which is, you know, be a fan of the players. Mm-hmm. And unless they are putting themselves in extreme danger by doing something completely foolhardy, uh, give them the benefit of the doubt. Try to I think that's, help them survive. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is great advice for the sort of open areas of the adventure, but there are some cases like we'll talk about where there are just death traps. And if you do the wrong thing on an AB choice, you will probably die. And and that's where I think it becomes 
tough for and, and back then it was very tough for dms to say well am i supposed to just murder the character i think i am right which which led to that sort of feeling of of well it's sometimes your characters are just disposable right and ground up and and spat out and that's just the way it goes yep there is a map of the continent and when i say map of the continent i'm not talking about the isle of dread i'm talking about <laughs> the large continent that is to the north of the isle of dread uh, so it gives us two or three sentences on geography, on the political regions of the greater map, the, the weather and the climate for this other area that really has nothing to do with the Isle of Dread. Uh, so it was interesting for some, I'm sure, but not terribly useful for actually running the adventures. <laughs> and that made me uh, just think about something I think about a lot which is there is such a great diversity in what uh, consumers of these products want. I could see some DMs look at this and say, why did you waste these several pages? It has nothing to do with this. I could see some saying, this is the greatest thing I've ever read. It's just three or four sentences about this region. Now I can create my own adventures there. Thank you for sparking my imagination. And I can see some saying, I want whole source books on every single one of these regions, or I can't run an adventure there. Uh, right. So you're, it's, it's such a uh, diverse audience, and their wants are, are so diverse. Uh, and that just it, it reminds me of this with this design. Yeah, and I think that the, the older designs tend to be this idea that you, you sort of want to fill in the spaces and provide the lore and the truth of it. I think modern design, when it's at its best, tends to instead ask the question of what will make this useful, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I don't know that I need 16 different paragraphs on different lands. If you instead gave me two or three fun places that could interact with this experience of running the Isle of Dread, I'd be better off, right? And, mm -hmm. and that's where you see books like uh, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, you know, have done a good job of saying, what does the DM really need? What can they use and how yeah. do I make it useful to them versus just ideas, right? Just yeah. ideas are great. They're not bad, but, right. but there can be a lot of space for very little gain if you right. go that older route. And as we will see in in later parts of this talk where we actually get into the Isle of Dread, there is such a thing as too little information for sure. So that's part one, uh, sort of the overview of the entire area and continent. Then part two gets us to the actual Isle of Dread and the adventure itself. So what's the background for the adventure? Characters, when they're coming back from an adventure, now remember, these are written for expert level characters. So they're going to be higher level, not just first level. Yeah. Third uh, to seventh. Yep. Uh, they are coming back from whatever adventure they've been on and they find a cache of scrolls. Scrolls seem to be blank, but they're soaking wet. So we should dry these. Well, let's apply some heat to them. Oh, look, when you apply heat to them, the invisible ink that was used to write on them comes clear and you get some secret ship logs. And these ship logs tell of a, not a pirate, but an explorer named Rory Barbarossa, who found this strange island and thinks that there's some very valuable 
treasure to be had there, but he couldn't he couldn't get it in the situation he was in. So he's going to go back. Sadly, that was 30 years ago. Rory Barbarossa is no more. But the adventurers have not just this log, but this half-made map that they can <laughs> use to go back and find this treasure. It's such a pulpy premise. It's right out of the novels we read as kids. And it's great, right? It's a, it, there's a lot to love about what this is trying to do. Right. It, it, it hits very quickly and easily all those check marks of what players generally want when they're going. They want a mystery. They want to know that there's a big reward at the end. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they want the blank map that they will be the ones to fill in uh, and a clear direction on where to go to get toward that. And, and it's all yeah. right there. The funny part is then what what happens is they say, so now you got to get your characters to the island. And then it posits a number of ways that you might do this. So they could buy or inherit a ship. They could take out a loan to buy a ship. They could pay for passage. They could be hired by someone who owns a ship. And and these are all just sort of options. And what's interesting is I don't know what the expert rules say, but I imagine a ship is not cheap. And you're third level probably, so you probably can't easily afford a ship. And and it's just the sort of very advanced Dungeons & Dragons take of sort of being simulationist. Yep. This is what the world would have. Rather than just going towards fun and saying, here's the scenario, right? It, it, it creates these. And it's fine to have options, but I think that it's a little too simulationist here to the point where a DM can run it in a way that, you know, one DM will run it in a way that saddles the party with debt. Mm-hmm. and they don't come out, come out ahead after the entire adventure. Right. And another one will just let them inherit it. And so it's just, yeah. you know, yep. I think designers are better off just creating yeah. a stronger recommendation. Exactly, yeah. One of the options was buy a ship, but a really bad ship. And so <laughs> you you take the percentage of what a regular ship would cost. So if if you pay half of the normal cost for the ship, the ship is basically half floating (laughs) it it takes half as much damage to destroy it goes at (laughs) half its normal speed right Uh, and it's uh that's a it's an interesting way to do it uh but it's you know i could just see well all i have is 10 gold pieces that's three percent of what uh, a ship would normally cost so we are basically floating on a tree uh out in the ocean (laughs) but assuming you get your players there uh, they they have the map and they know that a certain area is safe based on the notes from Captain Barbarossa. Uh, so, well, before that, we get uh, some brief advice on mapping and wilderness travel. And uh, can I add something here very quickly? Yeah. The, um, the fifth edition playtest, the D&D Next playtest version, has a couple of quick start options. And one of the recommendations is just be shipwrecked on the island. Mm-hmm. As, as the start to it, which is another fun way to do this. I've played in this kind of scenario where you just, you know, you, you emerge on the beach from having survived the shipwreck. You have a few supplies that you've salvaged. Now you get to begin this uh, experience, and that can be a lot of fun too. Yep. Uh, so the, the advice that they give is, you know, pretty basic in terms of you can, you can see two hexes away, so you know what kind of terrain is there. 
and unless there's a mountain or a thick jungle blocking your view, and then it's only one uh, square or one hex. Uh, so if you want to do what the 5e Dungeon Master's Guide says, um, you can go to chapter one of the Dungeon Master's Guides Guide, which tells you that uh, a kingdom scale map is six miles per hex. And that happens to be exactly what the Isle of Dread map uses. Uh, I don't know if that was done on purpose or just worked out that way. Uh, the continental map in the Isle of Dread is 24 miles per hex, uh, by, if you uh, care. Um, and in Chapter 5 of the Dungeon Master's Guide, there is an actual section called Mapping a Wilderness. Um, and we talked about this on our show uh, of August 2020. So if you want to go back, there's a link in our show notes to uh, Teos has an article on his blog site about uh, about exactly that, exploring as a pillar. Yeah, and then there are uh, wandering monster tables. And this is kind of funny because it doesn't really tell us what to roll because I guess it's using the expert default rules. But then if a wandering monster comes up, you'll look at one of three wandering monster tables and you might wonder, why are there three, Sean? <laughs> why are there three? Uh, well, one is south of the Great Wall. So the Great Wall is separates the most uh, habitable and safest part of the island where the notes of the captain send you. Then there are areas uh, where is south of the main river and then north of the main river. So essentially they're there to make things harder as you go. Yeah, and that's kind of interesting. It's harder and, and also to, to give it a little flavor. And yep. I'm not sure that the variance is super tangible to players um, when they're moving a fair bit. And there's yep. a lot of repetition across the tables, but, you know, so yep. it goes. It's interesting. On Twitter uh, last week, listeners Eric Mengi and Graham Ward were sharing how they like rolling on multiple encounter tables. And that can and still but each table has a chance of nothing happening mm -hmm. right and these kinds of tables what it can mean is that in a very rare situation you'll come up with encounters on both tables and then those creatures are interacting with each other as part of the encounter idea mm -hmm. i thought that was kind of fun to, yeah. to do that yeah so you could have two monsters fighting each other a a sort of civilized group fighting a monster two civilized groups fighting or talking when the characters come up on them, which is a cool way to make a very different sort of encounter than all oh, the monsters come rushing at you or oh, you need to talk with the you know dwarven clan that's that's coming towards you. Yeah. Uh, there are also many, 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 many maps in this adventure. Uh, some are for specific areas. Others are generic, such as caves that can be used or reused as inspiration strikes. Um, there's overland maps. There's, you know, larger maps or smaller maps of larger areas like the central plateau uh but you are definitely not lacking any maps when you <laughs> no. when you play this adventure and then we get to the keys uh to the island encounters so there are hexes on the isle of dread with numbers which means at that particular hex there is something there uh Characters start on the southern peninsula that Barbarossa wrote about in a village known as Teneroa. Uh, it's possible that players could land elsewhere, 
like with a shipwreck or if they decide to sail around the island. But if you want to give the full effect of uh, having these villagers provide some information, maybe provide some resources to the players, you could have them land there as well. Uh, it, it's interesting that the adventure says, if the players think ahead and bring trade goods that these villagers might want, they should get experience points for the amount of money that they brought, worth of goods that they brought. So if, if for some reason they could bring 10,000 gold pieces worth of stuff, that's 10,000 experience points for them right there, uh, which is an interesting, uh, you know, interesting way. It's sort of our version of a milestone or our version of just automatic advancement. Um, so that, that was funny. Uh, what did you think of Tanaroa? It's an interesting place. It has uh, some aspects that are kind of fun. Like it has several tribes that, that have animal totems. They're all matriarchies, um, though it's sort of strangely done. They're matriarchies, but then it sort of highlights the role that various men play. Um, and it has a strange cultural facet where the dead are raised as zombie workers by necromancers. Uh, the culture is sort of convoluted, but at the same time thin. It doesn't feel coherent. It's clear you're supposed to interact with the Tanaroans, but but we aren't really given great details to create common ground. Uh, the the D&D Next Playtest does a far better job of that. So I, I think if you're converting this adventure, you want to think about how do I portray them so that they're interesting and worth getting to know? How do I build relationships with specific NPCs and give them some personalities so that you know you feel like you have these these ties to this location that you're going to start in? Uh, the necromancy, I think there's a lot there that you want to explain, and to what extent? Because it seems like it's almost taboo to talk about it, but it's there. And these necromancers are sort of a little bit withdrawn from the rest of the life of the place. So I think thinking about how to explain that uh, yeah. would make it better. Yeah, and don't they cover the heads of the zombies with with tarps? So, so you, you don't see you the can't relatives. See them, uh, but they're there doing labor. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. just it's it's sort of weird, and there's no there's nothing that these these villagers want, right? They yeah, the, and 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 yeah. yet some of their members have been captured by pirates, right? Um, and there's also it's a little bit like uh, in King Kong where. They they don't really truly tell you why there's this enormous wall. You know, it doesn't look like they could have built it now. Right. Uh, but there is an enormous giant ape in the forest. And and so there's, the, you know, again, like the, the lack of sort of hooks. And, and that's where I think in modern design, you know, you want to create a relationship um, between the, the players and the adventure so that as they interact, they get things. Right. And that makes them want to interact more. And so you want to rethink this encounter so that, as you interact with the Tanaroans, you learn information about the past. You come to understand them. You develop relationships. You get quests and 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 things that cause you to want to go out there and and, and all of that. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. Uh, the other is that there's this area that has the pirate camp. Right. And we get a map for that. It's very advanced Dungeons and Dragons where, you know, it's one of these things where you might be able to like slowly take them out as they're in their various cabins, yeah. uh, huts, whatever's, 
or you might get completely overwhelmed and TPK'd because all of a sudden a whole band of pirates are just beating on you. Um, the pirates are also slavers, so you want to remove that aspect and simply have them interrogating the Tanarons to plan an attack on the village or otherwise maybe uh, take advantage of Tanarons or manipulate them or something like that. You know, change the angle up so that um, you know, you're not creating that kind of experience. Um, and then a bunch of other or peoples that are around this place. Yeah, so the main island, I mean, there, there, there are smaller islands that the the uh, pirate camp is one of them but then we get to the description of the main area so just for example there is a rakasta camp not rakshasa but rakasta uh, which is a species of humanoid cats that walk around on four legs or two legs sorry uh but they have the heads of cats and all i'm thinking is all right well that's not hard to change in uh in fifth edition now that we have yeah. now that we tabaxi. have a, a tabaxi uh but so there's a map of that camp but there's really no information on what they want how they live right. what they do it's it's just there the only very thin thing that we have and it's like this for all of these that i'm about to discuss are their alignments which in basic or expert is l for lawful N for neutral or C for chaotic. <laughs> uh, so if you say, you know, anything chaotic is evil, then you get that idea that they might attack without provocation. Uh, but otherwise you just don't know what, how they would react to the characters wandering into their camp or finding them lurking on the outskirts. You know, what do these Mercasta want? So let's move to area 10, the next one. Which is a Phanaton settlement. These are half, yeah, these are halfling-sized <laughs> creatures that look like a cross between a monkey and a raccoon, and they glide sure. from tree branch to tree branch like flying squirrels. I'm like, I okay. want to play one. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm like, okay, this is so cool. They're lawful, but again, that's all that's said about them in their society. Uh, the, nothing happening, and this goes on and on with ogres and lizard folk and. Arania, which are sort Spiders. of spider people, troglodytes, dinosaurs, baboons, there's a green dragon, uh, more and more and more of these areas. They're just there, and this is what's there, and that's it. What about mm-hmm. them? We don't know. And I think, you know, the era of this is one where, and, and especially when these authors grew up, uh, is so pulp-influenced where it's just you know, Tarzan or Conan or whoever just tearing through the latest challenge. Um, And they might have some tiny vestige of a culture or whatever, but they're just foes, right? And I think this adventure actually moves beyond that, but it it almost doesn't know how to do so better than just with a tiny amount of open possibility. It doesn't give you anything. And that's where as DM, you want to sit down through the, and, and look through these and say, well, what do they want? What are they doing? What are their goals? And is this meant to just be an adversary or are they, or is it more interesting than that? And should it be right? The, the, the green dragon could be a threat or it could be that it has some really interesting goals that you might want to align with the green dragon for some reason. And, and just thinking through each of those is, is worthwhile yep. and necessary even. Yeah. Yeah. And that, the, the whole 
portion of the adventure that's outside of the main central plateau is just these sorts of descriptions repeated. Um, mm -hmm. So you're definitely going to want to go in with a plan to tell the story that you want the, the players to, to be part of. Um, and, and players are, they will feed off of that initial reaction, right? E even in Tanaroa, especially back in, in, in the basic days in the eighties, um, you know, a, a paladin might see undead work zombies working the fields and immediately start attacking because that was the sort of mentality of players back then. But even in today's world, it's very different if you encounter lizard folk, say, walking around in a swamp because they're hunting and they've got their spears out versus if they're in the process of teaching their young how to fish. Mm -hmm. Or if there's a group that is currently trying to hide from a dinosaur. Mm -hmm. That would be a threat to both of you. Those are different situations, and when which one you toss out to your players will drive how they read it and how they decide to act. Right? The more that you paint them as a potential ally, the more that they're going to think about that and interact, and it'll probably be a richer experience. Yep, and it also becomes a richer experience when you do that and then give conflict after the original confrontation mm. so rather than having the conflict happen right away have a, a peaceful con or have a peaceful meeting but then something happens that lets the characters um, decide about a conflict later where it's not just a snap judgment yeah so we have the outer areas and then we have part three which is the central plateau this has its own map of course which is scaled to a one mile per hex map. Uh, there are some definitely interesting encounters in this area, uh, like a gold mine that yeah. a lot more time and energy is spent describing this gold mine than describing like any of the humanoid uh, creatures that live on the island. Yeah, and, and there's a treant forest, which, you know, has the makings of a very interesting encounter. Uh, but, but, you know, and, and actually that's one of the maybe better developed ones there because they do talk about how the treants behave and they'll do things like move away from you. Right. Or if you camp in the forest at night, you know, you'll, you'll find your, your fire extinguished because the treant sort of snuck in and snuffed it out or they all move away from you. And, and that can be a lot of fun if you play that up. I like that a lot. Yeah. And the gold mine goes into great detail about how much gold can be taken from it, how much it costs for you to hire people to come back from the mainland to mine it, and how much it costs to transport it back, and how many gold pieces could be made from it. It was it was quite funny. And, you know, that was a ton of fun when we were young, and, and, and it can be a ton of fun now because adventures don't often give you this, right? Right. And, and so I think this is actually great. You can use downtime rules. You could use the franchise rules for this. Um, you know, this could be a business that they can run for some amount of time until the, the mine is tapped out, uh, the vein is tapped out. Um, and, and could be really a lot of fun to extend that situation because it's a reason for them to come back. Like, you can't just process the gold now. You know it exists, so you'll have to come back after you're done with everything and get resources from the island. That's a fun way to, to extend the experience. Yeah. And here is where you could play in some conflict with one of these groups. Uh, you know, maybe the ogres, maybe the lizard folk, you know, this is an area where they hunt and by mining it, you have the potential to ruin their thing. Uh, so you have to deal with them in one mm -hmm. way, you know, provide them with food so they don't have to use this area for hunting or, or something 
that yeah. brings uh, something other than just pulling gold from the ground uh, into it. Finally, you reach the central plateau, which, uh, which has a volcanic lake and then an island called Taboo Island in the center of the lake. The shores of the lake hold a village called Manchru. Uh, the villagers at first treat the PCs well, uh, feed them, you know, treat them nicely. And then they say, oh, we, are, we are having a trouble with the marauders that live on this island in the lake. And that points you pretty quickly to part four, Taboo Island. And there's an interesting sort of pulpy thing here where they can't speak about the island, but there are these, you know, rebels that are out there that went to the island and, 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 you know, you're supposed to imagine that somehow there's this linked past. There's something bigger here. That bigger thing is never really resolved. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's something that you could do to try to really think through what is going on. Uh, The other weird thing is there's a chief who is a statue that the others revere and, and will ask questions of. And so that creates a role-playing thing where are you going to yeah. call these people and look, you're just talking to a stone statue or. Right. Yeah. Yep. yep. There's the chief who is the statue. Then there's the talking chief who gets messages supposedly from <laughs> yeah. the statue and translate those into, you know, orders for, for the villagers. So whether there is a connection there. Whether the talking chief is just making these things up uh, because magic exists in this world. So maybe the chief is right. talking to the talking chief. We, we don't know. Uh, but everything points neatly toward Taboo Island, which is that central island within the, the volcanic lake. Um, it holds the ruins of a civilization that were, was once ruled by Kopru, which is a new monster. These, uh, we, they've been in other editions as well since they're sort of tentacled, lamprey-based, web-clawed, lower-body, like, <laughs> tails, eely things. Uh, they're definitely, as Teos has been mentioning, a pulp monster villain um, that see other humanoids as just servants. Uh, so do you want to mention anything more about those Well, one interesting thing is they have the ability to charm a creature. And the way this charm works is it forces you to act normally, but secretly serve the interests of the Kopru. Only dispel magic or that Kopru dying ends the effect. And so there is a danger here, both at the very end encounter and and partway through this uh, island uh, dungeon kind of thing that you could have a number of party members and you'll probably have some are going to be secretly aligned with the Kopru. And, and in the olden days, and, and even if you were to just straight convert this to 5e, that's a problem because there there is little that is as deadly as a character to other characters. Yep. And so they're not balanced like monsters are. So when a character fights another, that is a big deal. And if they do it in a combat that's already challenging, it's a super big deal. And if there is nothing that stops that, like if they don't, if nobody has dispel magic or the person who did is the person who's on team evil, mm-hmm. uh, that is a, a major, major problem. So it's something to think about that this exists in that way and maybe, maybe change the nature of how that charm can work and what can end it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Kopru are, the idea is that they came here, who knows from where, are they aliens? Are they from another dimension? Who knows? Uh, but they can only live in very hot environments, and that has led to their decline, I guess, as this volcano is not as hot as it once was, and the surrounding island is not 
So that's why this is all in, in ruins. And all you have are, I think, three or four that are in their lower levels of the ruins. Yep. And so you get here what turns into a pretty typical dungeon with some standard things and some some neat and different things. Um, there's an altar there that if you, the, you look up on it, you could become charmed. And that's <laughs> what Teos was talking about. Um, yeah, and, you know, I was thinking about this whole charm thing. And, and there's that scene in uh, Temple of Doom, a very imperfect uh, Indiana Jones movie. But, you know, short round, one of the characters helps Indiana Jones through role playing and through smacking him around a bit, help him overcome being charmed. And that's the kind of thing that I think would be fun to allow that to, to sort of work. Because here it's a saving throw to everybody who looks on the statue. And if you fail your save, you're now secretly on Team Evil. That's going to be a problem if even two characters are on Team yeah. Evil. Yeah, it's true. Um, so, you know, again, typical dungeon, lots of some traps, underwater things, a, a third and final level with a big cavern with boiling mud pools. And, and, it, and can I say, Sean, it, maybe what isn't typical is this flooding thing. There are a lot of parts of this dungeon that are partially submerged or or mostly submerged and when you open doors, the water then goes somewhere, which is novel yeah. and neat. But sometimes it's like if you opened this door and you fail a saving throw, you are swept down to your death, mm -hmm. which is super dissatisfying. And so I would think about alternate ways to do that. Like I think more fun would be if you're being sucked into a drain and you're drowning and making checks because and now the party has to think, how do I free you? different scenarios that are more about a challenge you're overcoming rather than an on off switch of dead or not. Yeah. And then we get an ending that really isn't an ending, uh, <laughs> right? Because there's no big revelation at the end. Uh, there's no shift of power. It's just sort of, okay, you've defeated the enemies and now what, uh, yeah, I guess you could go and adventure more. You get six ideas for yeah. further adventures. Uh, sunken treasure, a charter to map the island if you haven't gone through every hex so far. Uh, trap a dinosaur or, you know, a great ape might be found and brought back to the mainland because <laughs> where have we never heard that before? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I like that the ending room has this like skeleton in a throne that's sort of calcified in place and has sort of treasure there. So you get the rewards of this treasure, but there's no explanation of what this person is. It's not a Kopru, it, it, but it's like, what, what even, what's the story here? And there's nothing. And, and, and it reminded me of many eighties movies where there's sort of that thing where you get yeah. to the end and you're like, are you guys going to tell me what this all was? No. no. All right. Okay. okay. I yep. just... <laughs> mm -hmm. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> so that is uh, the adventure. If you're going to run it as a one shot, I think it's pretty safe to say you just pick several uh, encounters along the way, you know, one at the main village, a couple interesting ones on the way to the central plateau, and then get them into the dungeon and, uh, and firing through that. Yeah. Or even make it a smaller thing like deal with the pirates, right? You've shipwrecked, deal with the pirates, and now use their ship to escape. Something small like that. Yep. Um, but there's a lot of fun that you can have with this. This is an adventure that, while it has these dated elements, has really neat pieces. And you can certainly make, make a lot out of the Isle of Dread and, and have a lot of fun in, in today's era. Yep, with just a little work to connect some of the creatures on the island, give them their own goals and thoughts and, and themes. Uh, you could easily run a very large 
campaign with this uh, with this adventure. So thank you all for listening out there. We hope you have enjoyed this show as we hope you enjoy all our shows. Um, if you would like to become a patron of the show and we thank our patrons for their donations, you can become a patron too by going to patreon.com slash MMP. So Teos, where can people find your brilliant thoughts? Uh, that's a trick question. <laughs> How about but you can thoughts? find my thoughts. Okay. <laughs> at alphastream.org or on Twitter at alphastream. How about you, Sean? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. You can follow the show at Mastering DND. Um, you can also leave comments on our YouTube channel if that's where you listen. Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected mark production. So, Teos, we have braved the jungle island of dread. What are we going to do now? There is one final, okay, two final challenges. We must defeat our final four opponents and emerge victorious with a championship. Oh, I see. Basketball again. Uh-huh. <laughs>